6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Well, we're going to continue our exploration of the epistle of the Philippians in chapter 3. And we'll always want to start with a word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the gift of this precious epistle. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and lives to its message and that we would better understand what you would have of us in our own walk in the days that ahead. We do pray, Father, that you'd help us to be more effective stewards of these truths as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. Well, we're in chapter 3, and that's probably one of the most beloved chapters in Paul's letter. It lays out some of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian life. It also unveils, in stirring language, Paul's own key personal goal, to know and to serve the Lord Jesus. And his key challenge to you is to be joyful. Now, stop and consider this situation. It was Paul, a prisoner in Rome, uncertain of his continuing to be alive in the days ahead, and who was encouraging his friends at Philippi, who were free, and he's telling them to be joyful. One would think it should have been the other way around. They should have been encouraging him. What robs us of joy? Well, primarily things. And Paul will give us a lesson on how to count. The first 11 verses of this chapter deals with Paul's past. Paul the accountant, if you will. He, he speaks of I count, and he'll talk about new values. Verses 12 through 16 will be Paul's present. Paul the athlete. He's going to press on with new vigor and so forth. And verses 17 to 21 are Paul's future. We'll call it Paul the alien, the foreigner, and because uh, his citizenship is elsewhere. And he says, I look, and he develops a new vision, and we'll take a look at that. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony, a Rome away from Rome. In a sense, we too are a colony of heaven here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, he will emphasize in uh, this chapter. The key word in the first 11 uh, verses is count, in the sense of evaluating or assessing. And uh, Socrates was famous for saying that unexamined life is not worth living. Well, Paul is showing us how to counter our life. And the first three verses emphasize that joy is to be founded to a large degree on sound doctrine. Let's jump right in. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, finally, my brethren, <laughs> and I love that, finally. He's got two more chapters. He's got two chapters at the end. Finally, my brethren. Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. And uh, 
this, this uh, uh, finally with two more chapters, I think, see, the rest is, is going to be, he's going to say for the rest when he gets chapter four. In other words, he'll give you another finally then. But his real call is to rejoice in the Lord. Jesus promised you uh, the joy for those who followed him. And this was announced, by the way, from the very beginning. You may recall in Luke chapter 2, when the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. In the very annunciation at Christ's birth. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. But he says, Fear not, I bring you good tidings of great joy, right up front. Joy is the birthright of all believers. Jesus himself declared, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full, in John 15. And Jesus prayed to the Father. He says, And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves, in John 17. So uh, it's a key, a key theme all through Jesus' teachings. So let's go on to the second verse. And Paul says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now an Orthodox Jew would call a Gentile a dog in the sense of being an unclean animal. But here Paul calls the Orthodox Jew dogs. And he isn't calling names. He's comparing these false teachers to the contemptible scavengers. And... Uh, so we're dealing here with the advent of the Judaizers is starting to show up here. From the very beginning, the gospel was sent to the Jew first in Acts 3 and Romans 1 and so forth. And the first seven chapters of Acts deals only with the Jewish believer or Gentile proselytes to, uh, to Judaism. In chapter 8, the message went to the Samaritans, the part Jew. But when Peter was called to open the gospel to the Gentiles without first becoming Jews, it created an uproar that finally climaxed and was confronted in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And uh, Paul was specifically sent by the Holy Spirit to minister to the Gentiles. That becomes very, very clear in Acts 13 and also all the way later. Peter really focused his attention on the Jew, but Paul specifically was called to the Gentiles. And, uh, but the dissenters didn't desist they followed Paul everywhere, despite, even after the council for Jerusalem. They followed him everywhere, stirring up trouble as they went. And the Luke, in, in, his, uh, in his, what I call volume two of Luke, namely the book of Acts, uh, he, makes, uh, the, he makes the responsibilities for those uprisings all through the narratives, uh, the, the responsibility of, of the Jews, not, not, the, uh, not the Christians. And uh, the book of Galatians specifically addresses these very issues. And it's these very Judaizers that Paul is addressing in these first two uh, verses here. Evil workers, he calls them. They were teaching that salvation was by faith plus works, especially the works of the law. And uh, Paul is indicating that their good works, and I'll put that in quotes, were really evil works because they were of the flesh, not of the spirit, and thus they were actually an encumbrance to salvation. They did not only did they not lead to it, they, 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 they blocked it in a sense. Again, we, we, we always retreat to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It makes it so clear. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Titus 3 is also a key verse in this area. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, 
hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And, uh, boy, we could just go on and on about that. Let's move on here. The word concision Paul uses here is katatomi. It's a cut up, actually, a mutilation. He's actually doing a pun on circumcision. The Judaizers taught that circumcision was essential to salvation, and Paul sees it uh, in itself as only a mutilation. He's really uh, uh, creating a deliberate pun on this. Even in the Old Testament, true circumcision was always of the heart, and that's in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and elsewhere. The true Christian has experienced a spiritual circumcision in Christ, is the concept that Paul is dwelling on here. Uh, in Colossians 2, verse 11, he says, In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And he's using that, obviously, metaphorically here. Moving on to verse 3, for we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And again, that's an echo of Romans 2 and many other passages. We are his, work, his workmanship, the poema, from which we get the very word poem in Ephesians 2.10. Confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence in the flesh. Dismiss the common claim, the Lord helps those who help themselves. That's not true. This is just as wrong today as it was in Paul's day. The Lord helps those who come to the end of themselves. And that's the key message here. It's the key message of the whole book of Romans. Let's discuss a little bit the difference between happiness and joy. They're very, very different. Every Christian virtue has its worldly counterpart. In the world, we have sex, but in the Christian, he has real love. In the world, we have security. In Christian, we have trust. In the world, we have self-gratification. In the Christian, we have peace. Not the same thing. In the world, we have happiness. In the Christian, has joy. Happiness is our translation of the Latin word fortuna, which is closely related to the concept of chance. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is not circumstantial. Joy is that supernatural inner quality of delight in God. Well, how does one get this joy? For first, becoming a Christian. Understand, you who, uh, who really are, and the program of God has provided for you, and you lay aside any self-effort, trusting Christ for it all. That's step one. Step two, obtain a mature knowledge of God's word. In Psalm 19, verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And uh, it's, it's amazing. You start going through, you'll see all through the Scripture, Old and New Testament, the concept of joy is always tied to uh, a position in God's Word. Now, Psalm 119, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. And uh, if you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, he says, Jesus says in John 15. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things have I spoken unto you, 
that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Very different concept than what we usually mean by happiness. And we find the same echoes in Exodus 13, Deuteronomy 6, and others, and they'll be all in your notes. Joshua, major charge, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, I'm sure you've memorized this. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do all that is written in it therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Okay, the third level here is to pursue a life of righteousness and peace. And Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And uh, Philippians 4, we're going to get to next chapter, but I have to put it in here. Where, uh, the admonition, be, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made, made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through, through or in Christ Jesus. So that's Paul's balance sheet. And it really deals with human ruin, which is really an echo, the inverse, if you will, from the whole Sermon on the Mount thing. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, be therefore even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Perfect in the sense of being complete. See, a chain is, ineffective, is, is as ineffective as just as one link breaks. One link and the chain is broken. One sin shatters any claim to the righteousness of God's standard. Human righteousness, at its best, is still inadequate to qualify for the destiny that God has in mind for us. That's why he went to such extremes to step in and, and, and uh, put his eligibility on the line on our behalf. And Paul will illustrate all of this from his own experience. Verse 4, he says, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And he's going to make a mockery of this thing by using himself as the ultimate example here. He fills out his balance sheet circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and as touching the law, a Pharisee. See, he, he emphasizes his Jew, he's a Jew, he's, uh, his racial origins. And he's not only that, of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, the Benjamite origin was a source of pride. Benjamin and Joseph were Jacob's favorite sons. They were born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. So they had a, there's a pride issue here. Israel's first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. Being a Benjamite, was a, that was a big, a big deal. And Benjamin was the one tribe that remained loyal to Judah when the civil war uh, divided both Judah from, uh, from Israel after the death of Solomon. So the Benjamites, uh, that was a, a badge of honor. And, uh, and a Pharisee. Pharisees were the most faithful in all the Jewish sects in their adherence to the law and regarded as... They were regarded as the summit of religious experience. So by all those standards, he's, he's, he's at the top of it. In fact, Paul was personally taught by the great Rabbi Gamaliel. And his career was a promising one, we find in, in, in Galatians 1, makes that point and so forth. Yet he gave it all up to become a member of the hated Christian sect, as they looked at it in those days. And he continues, concerning zeal, persecuting the church touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul's zeal in defending orthodoxy included zealous attacks, of course, on the believers of that, uh, that deceiver as they regarded Christ in those days. 
And uh, he also participated, in effect, in the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7. He was apparently the guy holding the coats and so forth. So seven achievements. Some inherited, some earned. These assets, from Paul's point of view, were actually liabilities. They kept him actually from God rather than enhancing his situation. So he continues, verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So it would seem on the surface that Paul is boasting in the flesh, but actually he is demonstrating precisely what needs to be avoided. He is autobiographically the ideal example, and he puts himself forth that way. And the word but there, perhaps the most important word in this chapter, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. See, what's impressive from a human point of view is quite different from God's point of view. Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. He was spiritually bankrupt. Paul had to lose his religion in order to find salvation, and so do you and I. I think one of the interesting banners of the 70s that the young people discovered that led to the whole, what some people call the Jesus revolution among the young, was the realization that Jesus Christ was the most anti-religious person that ever walked the earth. And once they grasped that, they were uh, openly uh, eligible for the real truth going forward. Well, how can anyone go so wrong? By using the wrong measuring stick. Like the rich young ruler, which many people think was actually Mark, by the way, there in, in Mark 10 and so forth, and the Pharisee in Christ's parable in Luke 18. Saul had been looking at the outside rather than the inside. And Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount emphasized attitudes and appetites more so than just actions. You read the Ten Commandments, all but, all but one are basically uh, actions, but Jesus redefines that in terms of attitudes and uh, appetites, and uh, that makes it so, so uh, uh, indicting, if you will. We're getting to verse 8. Paul continues, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. You know, it would be pretty hard to find a more forceful re refutation of human effort uh, to please God than what Paul has presented here. And uh, there's in interesting that there's four Greek participles that actually introduce the strong statements of verse 8. But let's, we'll go on here. Paul's confrontation on the, board, on the road to Damascus caused him to see everything in his life quite differently. In Act, this all takes place in Acts chapter 9, the first 21 verses. This did not make him repudiate his heritage. He did not become less a Jew. It made him a completed Jew, one that has found his Messiah. And it's his personal relationship that is paramount. That is what Jesus prayed for with his Father. You recall in John 17, Jesus says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That Jesus, this intimate prayer of Jesus with the Father. Well, there's two kinds of righteousness. The works righteousness, and that's what the first six verses we're dealing with, and faith righteousness from verses 7 through 11 here. Paul continues, verse 9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You know, this summary right here is a summary of the whole book of Romans. The heart of salvation in one verse. 
be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So all are classified within three spiritual types. The self-justified, that's Romans chapter 1, 18 to 22. Paul indicts here in verses 23 to 21 through 28. The moral person, which is in Romans 2, verses 1 through 16, who still falls short of God's requirements. And the religious person in Romans 2, verse 17 to 29. And, but God looks at the heart, as we know, even as early as 1 Samuel uh, 16. But uh, the, the, the three spiritual types that Romans deal with are summarized right here in these verses. All are short of God's requirements, and that's God's amazing predicament. You know, I'm really uh, uh, enamored with uh, the acronym that Hal Lindsey has promoted, where he, he takes grace, G-R-A-C-E, as God's riches at Christ's expense. Most of us don't realize that God also benefited by the cross because it made it possible for him to extend his arms to us by having the price paid and uh, not compromising his righteousness. And uh, so it's, a, it's it, God's amazing predicament is to love us and yet our conduct and our, our, our genetic defect of sin standing in the way. And he was able to, to accomplish what he wants to accomplish by at Christ's expense, by Christ's uh, uh, passion and his commitment and his offering of himself. How can a just God forgive sins? You know, that really fascinating insight of Socrates in 500 B.C. He's re recorded as saying, it may be that deity can forgive sins, but I don't see how. That's a very perceptive statement. Socrates realized that a righteous God has got a predicament. Because if he's going to preserve his righteousness, how can he forgive sins without them being paid? And that, of course, uh, he didn't have the visibility that, that uh, God would become man and be, enter the human predicament and fulfill our destiny on our behalf. Wow. The answer, of course, is an amazing gift, the gift of a son to pay the price and thus enable the redemption of those who would accept God's program. Gaining the righteousness of Christ, the technical term is imputation, to put to one's account. So if you want to put in your notes, read Romans 4, the first eight verses very carefully. It nails that right there. And our sins had, conversely, been put on his account. And uh, Romans 9 is a passage that deserves our careful study. So put that in your notes and follow through, and we'll move on here. The only indefeatable barrier to truth is the presumption you already have it. And that's one of the, you know, for many, many years, um, I used uh, Acts 17.11 as our trademark to be like the Brians who receive the word with all openness of mind but search the scriptures daily to prove whether those things be so. And for uh, many, most of the last few decades, I, I always felt the real emphasis was to search the scriptures daily to prove things, what it really says. And in recent years, I began to realize it's the first part of that that's probably even the bigger challenge, to receive it with all openness of mind, all readiness of mind, to set aside our presumptions and, and, and to let the text talk. Because we all tend to approach the text with some presumptions of our own, and that's the only real barrier to truth is a presumption you already have it. Very fundamental insight there. So, it, so uh, Paul's going to continue focusing on the fellowship with Christ here. It's one of the most... Uh, 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 common misconceptions we see promoted today is that the celebration of the decision for Christ is, is some kind of climax or ending. 
You get that flavor in many, in many procedures here. It should be seen only as a beginning, a launching. It's not, a, it's not the uh, finish of the race. It's the beginning of the race. And uh, you say you're saved? Well, great. What have you done with it? I often like to do it with a large group. Ask how many you've saved and have people raise their hands and say, great, what have you done with it? What fruit have you borne? And uh, what fruit has, has your salvation yielded? And uh, see, faith is not an instantaneous event, by the way. It's a path of growth. And Abraham's probably the prime example. God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, uh, but he didn't fully respond until his father died, interestingly enough. He simply moved up river for a spell. That all comes out when Stephen summarized that for us in Acts 7. But his pilgrimage, nevertheless, was a journey of growth. And by the time you get to Genesis 22, his faith included the ostensible resurrection of Isaac. He was prepared to offer his son, knowing that he would be resurrected. And uh, the, the Akedah of Genesis 22. The ultimate goal, of course, is fellowship that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The fellowship. The word fellowship there is koinonia, uh, the, a word that means partnership, communication, and uh, participation. And uh, see, Paul exchanged a set of rules, the law, for a friend, a master, and a companion. Not the law, Christ. And often the ultimate intimacy is arrived at, ironically, through what some have called the dark night of the soul. Even when God seems to have isolated us from him, <clears throat> no matter how much we pray and so forth. One of, the th one of the steps you should be prepared for is that sometimes God will seem to be uh, uh, distant. And, uh, and, and that may be his way of drawing you into a deeper intimacy. And uh, that's the subject of our book, The Faith in the Night Seasons, which is a a really practical guide to the dark times which God sometimes uses to draw us into deeper intimacy with Him. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.